this episode of Adventures in Being Gifted. Recognizing that your kid may not fit the mold of other kids in the classroom or even at home, but that doesn't mean that that they can't be successful and that they won't be successful. It just might be on their own trajectory. That and a whole lot more coming up. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Adventures in Being Gifted podcast. I'm Jill Hartsock. And I'm Jessica Mullen. And we're two experienced gifted teachers and your hosts. This podcast is a place for parents, educators, and students living the gifted adventure to hear stories, practical tips, deep dive into relevant topics related to being gifted. So come along for another Adventures and Being Gifted episode. On today's episode of Adventures in Being Gifted, we are talking about twice exceptional learners and neurodiversity. These might be new terms to our listeners, and oftentimes they are not formally used in schools with families. Jessica, in our experience as GISs, we use 2E or twice exceptional with our gen ed teachers and parents, but it's never officially documented on a child's WEP or written on their evaluations from pediatricians in our experience. Yeah, that's correct. It's not an official term. Typically, the term twice exceptional is used informally amongst us educators and occasionally with parents if we've had the opportunity to have conversations about their child around this concept of 2E. So these terms can be very confusing and somewhat complicated to understand, but they're all too important not to talk about or to dive deeper in order to understand it. A lot of times, um, teachers, parents, students themselves will embrace the identified cognitive gifted ability label, but they don't always want to embrace and understand maybe the label of dyslexia or dysgraphia or um, some of those different disabilities. Yeah. And I love how coming up, Emily is going to talk about how it is some of those disabilities doesn't doesn't mean your child's broken and they do not need to be fixed, but we just need to learn how to accommodate those students. And we truly believe in today's episode, it could change the way our listeners see our gifted kids, gifted children, or maybe even yourself. To help us navigate these subjects is author and podcaster, Emily Kircher-Morris. Emily is a licensed therapist in St. Louis, Missouri, where she works with neurodivergent gifted kids and their families. We are honored to have Emily here today to discuss the terms twice exceptional, neurodiversity, and talk about her book, Teaching Twice Exceptional Learners in Today's Classroom. Welcome, Emily. Thank you so much. We are so excited to have this conversation with you today. Would you start off by sharing a snapshot with our listeners of your why? Why did you transition from being a certified gifted teacher to starting a private therapy practice specializing in gifted and family counseling? When I taught in the um, in the gifted ed classroom, I taught at both the elementary and middle school levels, and the kids who I both connected with and I noticed needed a lot of support were the twice exceptional kids. When I would work with families, we would try to reach out to the community to find opportunities for them to um, 
you know, have additional support, whether it was through the, you know, a psychologist, a counselor, whatever. And there were very few people out there who understood how giftedness impacted those kids in order to effectively intervene with them. So um, because that was an area that I was passionate about and I knew that there was a need there, I chose to go back and get a second master's degree in counseling and family therapy um, and then gradually kind of built my practice and left the schools. So Emily, with that specialization in gifted kids and what we like to call gifted grown-up kids, we're just curious, the most common, one of the most common aspects of gifted kids and what they're working through is that twice exceptionality. So before we get any further for the listeners who might not have heard of this term or might have might not have a practical definition of 2E, would you go ahead and just define what twice exceptional means for our listeners and then give us a couple examples that you've seen in your work for us to sure. have a foundation before we dive into more? So twice exceptional is a term that means an individual who has cognitive ability that's in the gifted range coupled with another area of struggle or difficulty or disability. So depending on whether you're in the educational setting or the medical setting, you know, some of those diagnoses might vary, but in general, the ones that we see most often are gifted individuals um, who are ADHDers, um, they are autistic, or sometimes they have a specific learning disability like dyslexia or dysgraphia or dyscalculia. Um, and so that term twice exceptional sometimes is a misnomer because often it's actually more appropriate to think of them as multi-exceptional because it's often not just one other diagnosis along with that giftedness. Um, but it's important to realize when a child is gifted or twice exceptional that that is a part of their profile because it influences both how we assess them and make those identifications as well as how we support them. Absolutely. Yes. Um, so talking just briefly about your podcast. So we love and follow your podcast, the Neurodiversity Podcast. And we would just like you to also help us understand what the term neuro, neurodiversity is and how it relates, but is also different than twice exceptional. So, so neurodiversity is a term that is um, kind of similar to the idea of biodiversity. So biodiversity, when we talk about biology, really talks about how diversity is necessary for the survival of our species. It is um, where we have a lot of different characteristics that serve different purposes. And even those that maybe are not the norm can, can be beneficial to a species survival. Just like biodiversity, neurodiversity is, is similar. And what it states is that there are different types of neurological wiring that are perhaps atypical compared to, to the general population, but that doesn't mean that they are broken or, um, or need to be fixed or cured and that there are strengths that come along with those struggles. So we need to support those. So essentially what we're really saying here is, is that neurodiversity really is something that is um, something that somebody is born with. So if somebody is born with an autistic brain or an ADHD brain or a dyslexic brain, like you're not going to change that throughout their lifetime. That is going to be how their brain is wired. And so they might develop compensatory skills to manage that, or they might need some accommodations, but you're not going to like 
make somebody unautistic or whatever. <laughs> so, so that's neurodiversity and, and related to twice exceptionality. So twice exceptionality is cognitive giftedness in and of itself is a type of neurodiversity. So there are other diagnoses that are not considered neurodivergent diagnoses that could also be considered as when combined with giftedness as a type of twice exceptionality. So for example, a child who has a diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder and anxiety disorder is not necessarily a, a type of neurodiversity, but when you have a gifted child who has an anxiety diagnosis, they probably need different types of educational accommodations and supports, which then makes them fall under that umbrella of twice exceptional. Yes. And we're finding that we don't have a ton of students with those official labels in the schools. And that is something that the parents are just now learning and understanding. So it's a little bit of a new concept. So thanks for defining all of those terms for us. All right. So Emily, you just released your book teaching twice exceptional learners in today's classroom. And in your book, you share that educators don't often have the tools to meet the needs of 2E learners. So tell us a little bit about what would be, in your opinion, the most important tools you believe educators need to have. I think the, well, the foundational piece, which I guess is a tool, is just the awareness that twice exceptional kids even exist. Because even in the gifted education world, there are people who teach in gifted ed programs who don't understand or really even accept the possibility that these kids could even really exist. There are people who explain away types of neurodiversity or twice exceptionality and, you know, kind of brush them under the, the rug because it's a little uncomfortable to talk about or there's a stigma associated with those diagnoses. Mm-hmm. And so, so for teachers to recognize that you can have a child who is cognitively gifted, who needs differentiation in order to be challenged and to learn at a rate that is commensurate with their ability, coupled with a disability where they need accommodations and support and perhaps even remediation, knowing that those two things can coexist is probably just the foundational tool that I think all teachers need, not just in the gifted ed classroom, but also in the general ed and the special education classrooms. I love that you brought that up because oftentimes it's hard for people sometimes to wrap their head around that they they truly do need the gifted service as well. Right. Even if they and, need and, that remediation. Yeah. Well, and I, I think one of the other... Um, pieces, you know, for example, when kids get older, you know, if you have a child, like I would say there are a lot of, um, a lot of autistic kids, not all, but I see a lot of autistic kids who also really struggle with written expression and probably even meet the diagnostic criteria for dysgraphia. So a specific learning disability in writing. And when kids get older, one of the things I hear teachers suggesting is that they don't take those honors or advanced level courses because it's going to be too much writing. And my response to that is that's discrimination against their disability. They need to be able to attend those classes with accommodations because that cognitively they can grasp the concepts. They have the, the ability to do that. They just need some modifications to how they show their work in writing. We can't prevent those kids from accessing those types of programs. But I think that's kind of the the gut reaction to how to solve that problem as opposed to 
trying to find ways to accommodate it. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's so important to find those accommodations to make it work. Um, so going backwards a little bit, can you just explain the layout of your book? Like what people can expect, um, how it's broken into the two parts? Sure. So the first part of the book talks about concepts that are related to all twice exceptional students. So there's a chapter about, um, managing individualized education plans and section 504 plans for twice exceptional kids and how to um, put those in place and how to brainstorm accommodations that might might be beneficial for a 2E kid. Um, there is a chapter on executive functioning, and we talk about goal setting, ways to really help bring 2E kids into that process. Um, and then the second part of the book, there is a chapter dedicated to each of the various diagnoses that we typically see with um, a twice exceptional student. So there's a chapter on specific learning disabilities, which includes all of, you know, reading, writing, and math um, specific learning disabilities. There's a chapter on ADHD, on autism, processing disorders, um, anxiety, and depression. And then there are some other things that kind of fall under those umbrellas that are kind of within that. But specifically, what does this look like in a child who is also gifted? And what sorts of supports do we need? What sorts of things do teachers need to be aware of to support those students in their classrooms? Yeah, sounds fantastic. Oh, I can't wait to get a copy. That's going to be awesome. So we are wondering, we know that you're raising twice exceptional gifted kids. Um, Book for Parents is coming out in January. I think that's right. Yeah, I really don't even that's what know. I last read from your from your information. But I, mm-hmm. we're just curious, um, you know, while we kind of wait for that to be released, how can parents benefit from the practical strategies that you're mentioning in your book? They may not necessarily pick up this, this book. They might wait for the other one, but mm-hmm. just share a few key tools for parents themselves. So specifically, um, that book delves more into what I call the five skills that I feel like all twice exceptional kids need. And it talks about how parents can really support those skills at home. So there is a chapter about um, self-advocacy, which is huge for 2E kids, and how parents can find that balance between enabling and accommodating, you know, and not falling into the trap of raising a child who has learned helplessness. Um, There's a chapter on executive functioning. There's a chapter on emotional regulation, which is huge, even for those kids who are neurodivergent, but maybe not, maybe they don't have like that diagnosis that specifies that they're twice exceptional, um, but they struggle with emotional regulation. There are some ideas there. Um, So those are just a few of the examples of of the skills that are included there. There's one about self-directed motivation and um, unfortunately, I don't remember the fifth one off the top of my head, which I really should. <laughs> it's been a while since I've looked at that book, actually, because it's been in with the publisher for quite a long time. So, right. And you're um, on but, to the next one. <laughs> yes. Yes. So anyway, that's been um, but hopefully it'll be useful. It's a lot of the tools and ideas and strategies that I talk about with families on a daily basis in my office. Um, and I think that it's really going to be um you know, hopefully something that'll be a good resource and that they can, you know, go back to and and, um, use as kids grow. Some of the strategies are not just specific for when they're young. They're kind of like how you can use them as your child develops and and matures. Oh, that's excellent. So um, 
you are a twice exceptional learner. Your husband is, and like Jill said, your kid, two of your kids are as well. And I mm-hmm. actually have a daughter who is also a twice exceptional student. So if you were to give a parent's advice who has just realized that they have a 2E child, what kind of advice or wisdom would you give them to help support them to, you know, be a better parent of a 2E child and help, you know, them kind of live through the gifted adventure and yeah. deal with it? Yeah, I think um, one thing that parents can really do that that is helpful is um, really just talk to their kids and listen to their kids because their kids will tell them what's working and what's not working for them. And I think when we do that, we're able to um, just take a collaborative approach to supporting kids. I think a lot of times, especially twice exceptional kids, feel like education is something that is done to them <laughs> as opposed to something that they are a part of. And, you know, recognizing that your kid may not fit the mold of other kids in the classroom or even at home, but that doesn't mean that that they can't be successful and that they won't be successful. It just might be on their own trajectory. Um, that asynchronous development that we see with gifted kids in general can be magnified in twice exceptional kids. So just know that, you know, as you're making progress, um, sometimes it's slow, but um but it's there and, and, you know, it can be frustrating when you're sometimes trying to advocate in a system that doesn't support twice exceptional students or understand them. Um, but, you know, you, you really are the, the best person to kind of know your child and know what they need and stand up for that for them. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you for that, for mm-hmm. the advice. And it is so true with the asynchronous development and it, it really does come to the forefront. And I think mm-hmm. that's reassuring for us as GISs and parents. Um, I have three kids of my own. I have one who is identified gifted. Jessica has two kids, both identified gifted. One right now we know of that has the two EPs. Um, mm-hmm. But I think as GISs, it's great to hear you say and affirm that the parents really do know their kids best. We've been saying mm-hmm. that to our parents for years and I, I appreciate hearing you say that. When I when I was in the classroom, it's like we are the we are the experts as far as the educational philosophy and the tools to use in the classroom, but we're not the expert on every kid that walks into our room. And so, I think that sometimes parents feel like they don't have the expertise to to ask those questions or to advocate. But um, but you do, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Don't be afraid, don't be afraid to to you know, ask those questions or, or make those requests because, um, you know, you, you really are the one who knows your child the best. And that's so good to just know from your end for us to reiterate that to our parents and parents out there listening right now to hear that you are truly the ones who know your kids the best. Yeah. And I love how you also said it takes time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It takes time to really unpackage, you know, who they are. And especially. As- yeah, especially when we're talking about neurodiversity specifically, um, you know, like I said, you're not going to make a child no longer autistic or no longer ADHD. Like that's just not going to happen. So as far as being neurodiversity affirming, how do we value who they are as a person, how their brain is wired and work with them as opposed to trying to like constantly fit the square peg in the round hole? Because hmm. that's just you know, not going to be effective for anyone. That's so true. So I'm going to throw another question that we don't have in our script, but I'm curious, Emily, what is one of your 
go-to books or resources that you as a professional um, therapist Mm. would say you use all the time? I'm thinking for us, um, one of ours is misdiagnosis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Well, it kind of, that's a great question as I'm looking over at my bookshelf and I'm like, (laughs) most of my books, I'm at my office right now. Most of my books are at home. Um, I really love, here's probably one that I think is, is great. And it's definitely more academic. So probably geared more towards teachers. Um, but it's, it's Scott Barry Kaufman's book, Twice Exceptional. And it's a volume that has, um, a chapters from, you know, that were, um, by different authors, but it is, it is great because it really breaks down the research about twice exceptionality and, um, helps to demystify that process. That is probably the one that I tend to go back to because it's just such a good, rich source of research and information that I can then, you know, um, use to kind of back up whatever, you know, like if I'm, if I'm doing my writing or if I'm just looking for ideas, it's, it's not, I would, I would say it's not as much, um, it's probably not as practical as sometimes teacher books are, are geared for, um, but it really helps to understand the foundation Mm. of price exceptionality. That's a good recommendation. Okay. So we have two more questions one on the script and one not. So I loved how your husband in your latest episode asked you as the guest, what question would you have wanted us to ask that we didn't ask? Mm. <laughs> I didn't have an answer for him either. I don't think. <laughs> um, what, you know, I guess. Um, hmm. Is there anything you want parents to know out there or listeners yeah. or gifted kids themselves? I think more than anything, um, recognizing that there are both strengths and struggles that come along with really anything, whether it's giftedness or any other diagnosis, and knowing that um, there are ways that we can support all aspects of a kid, but we, we sometimes just have to really think creatively. We have to look at things in a different way. Sometimes the things that we've used before or for other kids won't work for um, for our twice exceptional kids. And I think gifted ed teachers especially know that in the gifted ed classroom, but we need to maybe take that a step further. Um, you know, so what does a, what do accommodations look like in certain settings or what could a, um, an individualized education plan for a gifted dyslexic student look like? Just because we haven't done it before, or we haven't done it as often, doesn't mean that we can't support those kids. And sometimes it requires breaking down some of the ways that are, quote unquote, tried and true in order to figure out the new ways to support these kids, because they are the kids without that support who become the underachievers, who become, you know, the students who are who are struggling. And we want to help them in a proactive way. We want to notice that before it gets to the point where they have lost their motivation or their drive. And, um, you know, that's, that's kind of the best thing we can do for them. Mm. So I true. love that answer. <laughs> yeah. As a mom, it hit, pulls the heartstrings. <laughs> yeah. And it's a good, it's a good challenge for all of us and a good mm-hmm. charge for us to be really thinking, like, even if we've never done it before, 
what can we do? How can we be creative mm-hmm. about this? So thank you for saying that. Okay, now I promise this is our last question. It has been just an honor to talk with you and get to know you today. So my final question would be, if you were able to take a time machine back to when you were a kid and back when you were in school, what would it be that you would tell your teachers based on what you know now about twice exceptionality, neurodiversity, giftedness, what would you want them to know about you on how to best support you and help you thrive as a 2E learner? I think that the best thing that my teachers could have done for me if I was able to talk to them is, um, you know, I would have wanted them to know that their approval really meant a lot to me Mm. and that if, if they were constantly reprimanding me or redirecting me, it really hurt my ability to try my best because I felt like it wouldn't be valued. And, um, and it was really hard to, to go through school wanting to do well, but not having the executive functioning skills to do that. Even my gifted ed teachers sometimes were kind of at a loss for how to help me and and support me or just thought more than anything that I just wasn't really trying. And I wish that they knew that it, it, it wasn't an effort issue. I was probably trying harder than most of the other kids. Mm Mm-hmm but I just didn't have the skills necessary. Um, you know, I, I think that my experiences as a kid really obviously have, have driven me here, but, but, you know, <laughs> what does it say that my educational experience was so traumatizing that I had to go <laughs> and do all of this to try to work through my problems that came from this? Um, that's probably that's an exaggeration, but a little bit, you know, I would just really want them to to know that um, that their approval could have been life changing. Mm, I think that's so powerful. But I just think about your work and everything that you've done, and I feel like you are making a difference. And hopefully, everyone who's listened to you and picks up your book can take all the the knowledge that you have gained and are sharing, and be better teachers because of it. Yeah. I hope so. That was kind of my thing when I went into gifted ed. It was like I went into, even just when I went into education, was I wanted to make sure that there were kids out there who were like me, who didn't have the same experiences that I did. And so, and that's kind of the mission that drives the podcast and the writing and my work in my office, all of those things. Um, And I love when I see kids succeed, it just, and, and overcome some of those things. It's just really um, empowering and, and healing. Mm-hmm. That's an amazing mission. Oh, and such a simple statement or simple message, but amazingly powerful. Okay. So then on tagging onto that, what would you say to your parents back then when you were a kid mm. in school? <laughs> <laughs> um, I would tell my <laughs> I would just tell my mom, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry for the hell that I put her through. Sorry, Aww. my language. Um, but, you know, 
I think it, it made both of us, you know, it strengthened our relationship in the long run. And, and for my dad, you know, I mean, we just, it was just a much different relationship, but I think the interesting thing is now he didn't understand as a, a, when I was a kid, he was much more, you know, disciplinary with a lot of the things, but through my work now, he's realized things about his own childhood and he was, I'm sure, twice exceptional. Hmm. And, um, you know, I think that that in a lot of ways has been eye-opening for him as well. And so maybe I would have just asked him as a, you know, at that time to be more open to understanding and, and connecting because I think that that would have been really meaningful for me as a kid. Oh, I love hearing that. And we find through our conversations and our guests that it's the same for them too, that they're noticing things about themselves. And in one of our upcoming episodes, we are interviewing a principal and he was never officially identified as gifted, but we have called him a gifted grown-up. And that was Mm -hmm. eye-opening for him. So we gave him... The book is over there. A gifted book, and he the gifted survival guide. How much he resonated with it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it is. That's that's huge. I love hearing that. Yeah. There there are definitely a lot of twice exceptional adults who were never identified as kids who are now recognizing that in themselves when their kids get identified. Mm -hmm. But because there were no supports, the only reason I was diagnosed was because my mom was a special ed teacher, so she knew both to ask to have me tested for the gifted program and that there was something not clicking with the ADHD. And so, you know, that was at a time that girls especially weren't right. you know, labeled ADHD. So it's, it's amazing as parents really do have that reflection and some of that, that counter-transference as they go through that process with their kids too. Wow. Yeah. Okay. What would you tell yourself? <laughs> um, probably just to like... <laughs> slow down for just one hot minute. Just, just, <laughs> just slow down. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, also maybe just that I wasn't lazy, that I wasn't unmotivated, that I could self-advocate and understand myself better. Um, but that also maybe, maybe there were some people out there who had some good ideas or strategies that I could have been a little more responsive to. Because I really didn't, I, I wasn't, you know, it's like part of it was, I think that was a, a, a coping mechanism was that um, I just figured that there really wasn't anyone that could help me. So I just didn't really give it a chance. Wow. I love that self-advocating yeah. piece, though. I think that's so encouraging for, you know, young students, old students, even college students to just advocate for themselves and speak up when they need something that is not being provided Absolutely. for them. Well, yeah. or, and even beyond, you know, yeah. when they get to the workplace or whatever, yeah. if you need accommodations, that's not unreasonable to mm-hmm. ask. Yeah. And I think this day and age, um, I teach as an adjunct professor at Xavier University, and there are all kinds of supports and places to call and people to call on our syllabus that every single course has to label that and offer mm-hmm. that information. So I feel in this day and age, a lot of people have more than we ever did growing up 30 years ago mm-hmm. or 20 some years ago in college. Five years. It was clearly five <laughs> years ago. <Yeah. laughs> 
we are not that old. <laughs> Emily, Can't, when... Not possibly. I know. When, not to age you or anything, but when did you start to notice that you were kind of transitioning into that self-advocacy role for yourself? About what age do you mm. think you were? I was identified ADHD as a kid, but, and took medication through when I was like in high school and kind of understood that. But then I got off my meds and I was like, you know, I think I'm just kind of a gifted kid and have some overexcitabilities and this is not really (laughs) an issue. Um, and so then I went another 15 years taking a variety of different medications for anxiety and depression because I just couldn't get my act together and I was really overwhelmed. And finally, when my youngest son was born, who's now six, um, after he was born and I was now an entrepreneur and had an office and had, you know, a lot of things on my plate, I was just so overwhelmed. And I finally went and talked to my doctor and I said, you know, I was diagnosed ADHD as a kid. Can I try some meds? And I will tell you, it was life-changing and my anxiety disappeared because almost all of it was related to executive functioning. So I think it wasn't really until I was able to understand that about myself, that I was really able Mm. to understand what that self-advocacy would look like. I think I had been working a really long time to kind of do all of the things myself and put the accommodations and the strategies, whatever, like I was doing that myself, but I wasn't ever really recognizing what was underneath it. Right. And until I recognized what was underneath it, I couldn't really step into that um, in order to, to, you know, ask for help when I need it. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That's, I think, going to be powerful and um, very relatable to the people listening. Absolutely. Parents for themselves, for their kids. That's really wonderful. Yeah. I mean, it's a process and everyone kind of goes through it at their their own pace. And there's Mm -hmm. definitely a stigma surrounding neurodiversity and twice exceptionality, mental health diagnoses, any of those things. And so it's... It's hard to admit it when we need help, but that's kind of, um, it's like, that's when we can actually grow. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you for what you're doing because you are really opening those gates and helping us to just head right in and deal with it head on. Yeah. Well, thank you guys for, for trying to, you know, continue to spread the word and advocate in your way too. Well, thank you so much, Emily, for joining us and sharing your practical tools experience on teaching twice exceptional learners in the classroom. So if you want to go get a copy of Emily's book, it is called Teaching Twice Exceptional Learners in Today's Classroom. You can get it on free Spirit Publishing or Amazon. Thank you so much for having me. Wow, Jess, that was amazing. What an awesome conversation with Emily Kircher-Morris. Yeah, I feel like I got so much as a parent, as a GIS, as an educator, just from her experiences and her sharing her knowledge on twice exceptional and neurodiversity. I know, I loved how she really shared her own personal story about what she would want her teachers to know. I really felt like that hit me as a teacher to realize, okay, these kids are not trying to do something on purpose or defiant, but yet they are trying really hard because they are compensating for their twice exceptionality. Yeah. I truly think what she said about being an advocate for your child and also teaching your child to be an advocate for themselves is so important. 
And for them to understand who they are and to to truly know that there is nothing wrong with them and that it's it's not a horrible thing or a bad thing as some people may perceive it to be, to be a twice exceptional kid. Mm-hmm. I love it. Or grown up. Yeah. And to be able to figure out what works for them, whether it's certain medications or certain supports. Um, but she did say as her, one of her key wrap up points was being able to ask for help. Yeah. And we hope that you, after gaining this information from her and this episode today, that you, if if you're wanting to ask for help, that you are now feeling a little bit more knowledge and more comfortable with, you know, taking charge and being that advocate for yourself. Absolutely. So go out, check out Emily Kircher Morris's podcast called The Neurodiversity Podcast. And also her new book that was just released last week called Teaching Twice Exceptional Learners in Today's Classroom. If you've listened to the last three episodes, you know that we have done a student voice segment. Well, we decided to mix it up. And now today we have a teacher voice segment. Joining us is reading specialist, Tammy Marvin, who talks to us more about the brain and dyslexia. We hope you enjoy. Did you know the Greek term for dys, D-Y-S, means difficult? Lexia means meaning of words. Put these two terms together and you have the word dyslexia, which means difficulty with words. My name is Tammy Marvin. I am a reading specialist with 28 years of teaching experience. That time has flown. I'm here to help bring awareness and resources for our dyslexic population. Here is another did you know. This quote comes from Dr. Marianne Wolf, the director of UCLA's Dyslexic Center. We were never born to read. Human beings invented reading only a few thousand years ago. And with this invention, we rearranged the very organization of our brain, which in turn expanded the way we were able to think, which altered the intellectual evolution of our species. And I say wow to that comment. That's amazing. Reading is one of the hardest things we will ever learn. And for about 20% of our population, it is even more challenging to learn. That's one out of five people who have a language-based learning disability. Dyslexic, dyslexia is the most common. Our dyslexic population needs to learn to read by being taught with a direct, explicit, and systematic way. There are many programs available out there for parents and teachers wanting resources to help further their knowledge of dyslexia. Here are a few of my favorites. The Yale Center for Dyslexia and Creativity. This site offers so much information. Dr. Sally Shaywitz has a fireside chat that you can watch on their site. Her book is called Overcoming Dyslexia. The site also has many frequently asked questions and a section on success stories from some people you may know who have lived with dyslexia. Steven Spielberg, Henry Winkler, 
and Whoopi Goldberg, just to name a few. Another one of my favorites is Dr. Jan Hasbrock. Her, <laughs> a professor, a professor, and a long-time reading specialist, a mother of a daughter with dyslexia, has a new book titled "Conquering Dyslexia." This book is a good guide for parents and teachers. She has a section titled 10 Common Myths About Dyslexia and 10 Common Facts to Debunk Them. You definitely want to read that section on those facts. As we continue to raise awareness of dyslexia and educate ourselves as parents and teachers, we will be able to make an impact for our dyslexic population. for listening to another Adventures in Being Gifted episode. Please make sure that you subscribe and review us wherever you listen to your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Join us again next time for more Adventures in Being Gifted.